Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. And welcome to episode number 156 of the Draft Analyst, presented by the Believe Sports Podcast Network. Do you believe? This is Chris Tripodi, and I'm joined by Tony Pauline, as always. And it's nice to finally be back in a good groove with football season moving ahead at nearly full speed. We'll cover the two big upsets of the week later in the show, with TCU topping Texas and Tulsa ending UCF's home dominance. But we also saw Mississippi State, Oklahoma, Pitt, and Memphis go down as well among the top 25 teams. Tony, that's almost 25% of the top 25 saddled with a loss in just one week. Yeah, you know, we've actually seen some pretty good football considering limited camps, considering, you know, things that we didn't know what were gonna, what was going to happen, when it was going to happen. I, I think the games have been interesting, and we really have not seen a lot of bad football as we have in some instances in the NFL. Yeah, and I mean, I feel like as a whole in the NFL, obviously we have uh, some very good experience with bad football, but I I remember saying the same thing after week one when we uh, discussed on the show is that like there's actually some decent football. Um, You know, obviously the NFL has preseason and stuff like that. College just has camp, but, you know, even without all of that preparation, it, it seems like a lot of teams, you know, some teams haven't obviously, but I think that's the case every year, but there are a lot of teams who have come out just kind of firing on most, if not all cylinders. Well, I mean, there was no preseason in the NFL this this year, which I think would lend or justification for some of the bad football. But I mean, you know, I haven't seen, we haven't seen really too many massive blowouts uh, on Saturday in, in college. We've seen a lot of good games. You know, Oklahoma has been upset twice, but those were both really good games. Uh, and, you know, two more weeks, we'll be talking about the Big Ten uh, entering the mix here. Absolutely. And. As we're going to get to the Big Ten eventually, we're also going to get to this week's game reviews in just a minute. But first, a word from our sponsor. The wait is finally over. Football is back. And while you may not be at the games this year, you can still be in on the action at Bet Online. For all you lowly Jets and Giants fans out there, not only can you not go to games, not that you'd want to because it's been pretty hard to watch so far, but because it's been hard to watch, Maybe it's time to get yourself involved a little bit elsewhere in the game. You know, I wonder what the over-under for the Jets is, was this year coming into the year because I, I think you probably could use that under for both the Jets and the Giants the way the teams have been playing. I think it was around six or seven, if I uh, recall correctly, but I could be wrong. From game spreads and totals to team player and coaching props, Bet Online gives you more options to wager than any place online. And there's always the online casino as well. It never closes. So head to betonline.ag today and take advantage of all the great sign-up bonuses. Again, that's betonline.ag and sign up today. BetOnline, your sportsbook experts. Now we will start this week's reviews with the TCU-Texas game. The Longhorns fell in this one, 33-29. And what we were really watching for was Sam Ellinger going up against the TCU secondary, specifically their pair of talented safeties. Now Ellinger came in. 10 touchdowns and one interception in two games. And he left with another four touchdowns and one interception. But it also might have been one of the worst four TD 
one interception games that you could really put together. He started the game missing his first four passes, did have two big plays in there that were wiped out by penalties, but then he dropped a third down dime to keep a drive alive Threw another couple of nice passes that actually weren't handled by Brennan Eagles and Tariq Black that would have been touchdowns. Then the first touchdown he actually does throw was behind Jake Smith and Smith goes behind adjusts and still gets into the end zone, even though it was a really easy touchdown made kind of hard. I feel like Ellinger stabilized a bit as the game went on, but he was still grounding some passes, still missed some throws. Then some other balls were dimes into tight coverage, including the final touchdown to put them ahead. In the end, Ellinger put his team in position to win. Keontae Ingram's, both his lack of top-end speed to finish a big play on that final drive and his goal line fumble, obviously doomed Texas in the end. But for me, I didn't really get a lot of answers from Ellinger in this one that I might have been looking for. He showed enough flashes, but overall it's just very inconsistent. Tony, what's your verdict? Yeah, I don't think we got a lot of answers from the uh, DBs, the, the two safeties that we were looking for, looking at uh, for TCU, Darius Washington and Trevon Morig. They played reasonably well against the run, but they didn't have they didn't really show a lot as far as consistent ball skills. I, I mean, as, as far as Ellinger's concerned, you know, almost brought the team back again like he did the prior week against uh, Texas Tech. But I guess TCU, unlike Texas Tech, realizes the game is 60 minutes long and the defense didn't stand around. Obviously, that fumble at the end really, uh, really hurt Texas. And that running back uh, for Texas who, who fumbled the ball, Keontae Ingram, is well-liked in some areas of the scouting circle circles. Uh, they already have him graded as a potential third-round pick. I'm a little bit further down on him. But, you know, a solid game from Ellinger, as you said. Not, nothing spectacular. They have gaudy stats except for the four uh, touchdowns. Uh, good interstate rivalry. I don't think scouts are coming away from uh, this game with, you know, gleaming, gleaming or gleaming or glowing about any single prospect. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned the ball skills for the TCU safeties. I mean, Trevon Merrick dropped an easy interception early deep in their own territory that would have stopped a drive. Um, you know, Darius Washington got caught up in crossers over the middle. Um, you know, he was lined up in the slot a couple of times, but these Texas receivers, a lot of them have good size. And the one thing we said about Washington coming in was that he's sized more like a slot cornerback than he is a safety. And he actually played a lot of slot corner in this game, but felt like he was getting consistently boxed out from making plays on the ball and, you know, just didn't have a super strong showing overall. So it's kind of just this whole game just seems like a, a jury is still out type of situation. Yeah, and Washington is going to be that. He's going to be a dime corner at the next level, probably in a zone or backed off the line of scrimmage. Mooring really, you know, you talked about the drop. He really was not very uh, prominent. And some people have a very high opinion of him. In fact, I think too high of an opinion. Now, the second biggest upset by rank, and probably the first just in terms of win probability, was Tulsa beating UCF, ending the Knights' 21-game home winning streak. The last team to beat UCF, on their own field was actually Tulsa back in 2016. So it's come full circle, but I digress. The real reason we were watching this game was not for that piece of history. It was because we wanted to see how Tulsa wide receiver Keelan Stokes fared against this UCF secondary. And I'd say he fared pretty well. Big part of the victory, six catches, 95 yards, one touchdown, added a big punt return as well that included multiple broken tackles on the play. You could catch him in the slot most of the time. Otherwise, though, he was quick off the line, very effective on slants and crossers, catching the ball off his body, just a reliable receiver. But he even got behind Aaron Robinson for a long catch as well, showed a little bit of speed and big playability there. So I was impressed by Stokes. Still no Brandon Moore for UCF in this one. We weren't sure coming in. But I was also impressed by Richie Grant. 
uh, got into the game early, really got into the flow with an easy interception, just had to move to the throw and catch the ball, which, you know, granted, a lot of DBs don't do it. Uh, he did show some nice range on the play coming from the opposite hash uh, to come over on the deep ball and make a play, read the quarterback's eyes, tackled well in the running game too, really all over the field, nine tackles and a pass breakup in addition to that interception before he got hurt in the third quarter. What were your main takeaways from this one, Tony? Well, my first thing with, with Grant is initially that seemed like a very scary injury. I mean, if you if you watch it, he kind of crumpled to the ground and his teammates were furiously uh, waving uh, to the sidelines for the trainers to come over, which they did. And, and they were all kind of kneeling around waiting. And then lo and behold, Grant gets up, sits up and, you know, it looked like it was okay. Probably was. I haven't followed up on it, and I apologize for that. I haven't followed up on it, but it looked like a concussion type of situation. I've seen that before where you think it may be, gosh, a bit of spinal cord injury or something like that, and it turns out to be a concussion. As far as Stokes is concerned, you know, he was silent for the first half of the game, and then he just turned it on uh, as uh, w- w- when Tulsa started to make their comeback. And he made several – you talked about the touchdown uh, reception, but he had several big uh, receptions on third down really to keep the chains moving. Very impressed by his performance, 15.8 yards per reception. He's a guy that people think is – or scouts, I should say, have graded as a potential late-round choice. Absolutely showed himself to be a gamer. He, you know, he's a solid receiver. My concern is – very average size and speed numbers, which is why he's a late round pick, maybe a fifth receiver at the next level, but really showed well uh, during the game um, Saturday night. Some of the other defensive backs uh, from uh, from, uh, Central Florida, Aaron Robinson, as you said, really didn't do much. Antoine Collier had his uh, moments, although overall it wasn't a solid game, although the game was played in rainy conditions, which I think uh, played a lot into it. But listen, credit to Keelan Stokes, uh, played well when the game was on the line. Yeah, I haven't seen much on uh, on Grant either. Um, you know, but that's a good thing because if it were the serious injury that it looked like it could have been at the beginning, um, you know, maybe we'd have heard more about it from now. But you know, what you said about Stokes, I mean, we said a lot about Tyler Johnson last year too. Lack of size, lack of speed is going to make him a last day pick. But none of this means that he's going to be a bad NFL player or that he's not going to outperform his draft position just that he's not going to be in high demand, even if he is really good at football when it comes time next April. Yeah, I think uh, obviously Johnson was a little bit more dominant, although he had better players around him. Uh, and he's a little bit more well-known than Stokes, but put Stokes on your scouting radar, that's for sure. Now our next game, UNC and Boston College, came down to the wire. It was 24-22 with a minute left as BC scored a touchdown. They went for the two-point conversion. It actually turned into two points the other way on an interception to help UNC seal the game. What we were looking at in this one was BC tight end Hunter Long and UNC linebacker Chaz Surratt. Long, nine catches for 96 yards in this one. Came in as the Eagles' leading receiver, certainly left as the leading receiver. He had almost 20 targets in this game. Phil Jerkovic threw 56 times, so he was at about 30% of the looks that Phil Jerkovic had going to Hunter Long. He did mix in a couple drops uncharacteristically, but showed off the hands to make some catches. He caught a couple balls that were inches off the ground. Uh, good awareness and blocking ability uh, that have some intrigue. He knew where the sticks were and really made it a point to pick up first downs on third down. The one thing about Long, he's just never going to be a guy that's elite at stretching the seam. He's not that kind of athlete, whereas Surratt, on the other hand, is that kind of athlete 
eight tackles with a sack and a pass breakup in this one. Was all over the field as he usually is. Didn't really get matched up much man-to-man against Long. But when he did, he wasn't letting him separate. Showed some good closing speed, both on pass plays to Long and others, and also against the run. Did get caught up on a few blocks here and there. Not the kind of guy who's really going to get free once he's engaged, but does a good job staying clean in general, which really just allowed him to make a big impact on this game. Overall, Tony, I mean, this North Carolina team, it's a pretty good squad. Yeah, they got an outstanding quarterback in Sam Howell. It's going to be a top prospect, uh, you know, going into the 2021 season. But, you know, I, I think it was a situation where both Surratt and Hunter Long played very well although we rarely, rarely saw them play against each other, as you kind of pointed out there. I mean, Hunter Long, if you were watching the game early in the game, as when Boston College was marching towards the end zone, uh, the pass was thrown to Hunter Long over the middle of the field, and, and he almost got sliced in two by Trey Morrison. It was one of those hits where you watched it on television, and it just hurt just watching it. And he was down for a while. Uh, I thought maybe it was some serious rib injuries or something like that. He was down for a while. He got back up, continued on the game, and then really played his best football after that big hit. So credit to him, you know, the resiliency, the ability to play while injured. You're absolutely right. I mean, for the most part, he's a de- dependable uh, pass catcher. Uh, Jerkovich, uh, Jerkovich, the uh, Boston College quarterback, has got to learn to take something off the pass uh, once in a while. But Hunter Long is not a guy that's going to stretch the seam. He's not a guy that's going to get down the field. If you're looking for a true move tight end, He's not it. I think he could potentially develop into a number one tight end in a conventional offense. But I think Hunter Long is more of a middle round pick number two at the next level. Surratt, I mean, Surratt is a three down linebacker. I said in our preview last week, I have him graded as a third round pick. The earliest I've heard from scouts I've spoken with is day three, which I completely disagree with. He's a terrific run defender. They have him at middle linebacker for the most part. I think he's more of your traditional weak side linebacker in the NFL in a 4-3 alignment. But as we've seen with that position, a lot of times those guys are stuck on the inside at linebacker in a 3-4. Great pursuit, great head for the game, athletic, goes sideline to sideline, sells out up the field on the blitz, had one sack and one tackle for loss. Also very good in coverage. Uh, really, uh, it's going to be interesting to see because as far as I'm concerned, Surratt is top 75 uh, uh, material for the next level uh, because of that versatility, because of the fact he can play three downs, even four downs. You can use him on special teams. And last but not least, at least one side not least in this one, an SEC matchup between Georgia and Auburn that really just wasn't much of a matchup. A 27-6 win for the Bulldogs. Most of the scoring also came in the first 25 minutes or so. And in this one, we wanted to see what Auburn wide receiver Seth Williams could do against Georgia's secondary. And the answer was not much. Three catches for 34 yards, probably saw about 10 targets or so, very inefficient, several drops, struggled to separate overall, which did create contested situations where he made most of his plays. But in the NFL, as we talk about all the time with big bodied receivers, it's really hard to make a living just being a contested catch guy. It's also hard to make a living doing that against NFL corners like Georgia has. Davis Daniel was very physical with Williams early. Tyson Campbell did the same late. They kind of seemed to have split responsibilities on Williams. Campbell got an early pass interference by not getting his head around, but later on, on a deep road up the sideline, did a great job getting around very early so that he could prepare and knock the ball away. 
Daniel handled Williams, but struggled a bit with the speed of Anthony Schwartz. It's just not his type of game. He's not a burner like Schwartz is. Tony, what did you see from the premier matchup in the passing game here? Well, I think part of Seth Williams' issues was Bo Nix is just just not a good passer. I mean, he's very inaccurate. You, you know, he's, he's, he's blessed to have a guy like, uh, like Seth Williams there who's so big and so tall and can adjust uh, to the Emmer throws to try and pull him out of the air. But I think that was part of the problem. Uh, Williams is a feisty receiver, like you said. Doesn't have the great speed, although I think he's a little bit faster than people think. Doesn't have the great speed, but he does not back down to a challenge. I was impressed with Campbell. I was impressed with Daniel. One guy you didn't mention who I thought played very well was the safety, Richard LeCount. Didn't really make a lot of plays, but was not caught out of position. Did a great job bracketing the receiver and working with the cornerback to cover the receiver. A lot of it had to do with the pressure that Bo Nix was feeling primarily from Aziz Ojulari, a guy who I graded coming into the season, Richard sophomore, as a second-day pick, had five tackles, including one sack and three tackles for loss. I mean, there's a guy with big-time potential. Obviously, you know, if you're counting score here, uh, Georgia won not only on a scoreboard, but they won with that defensive secondary covering Seth Williams. I think they did a, a lot of those guys played very well in a variety of capacities. And it's funny you mentioned coming into the game that Bo Nix in week one, or I shouldn't call it week one, week one for the SEC, looked a lot better yeah. than he had last season. Seemed to be a guy that might have been taking a step forward, which would allow someone like Seth Williams to have some success in a tough matchup like this. But obviously it just kind of went completely off the rails. I mean, that Georgia defense uh, compared to the Auburn offensive line and it just there was really no chance for for Auburn in this one, and you know I know it was the fourth ranked team versus the seventh ranked team in the nation, but by the end of the season those those rankings are are not going to be uh, close to where they were at least on the Auburn side. Kentucky does not have the pass rush or the secondary of Georgia, uh, which I think uh, played into Nick's hands because he's a guy that needs time to see the field to make decisions and ready himself to throw the ball. Uh, but as you saw Saturday night, I mean, they just couldn't get anything going early on uh, Auburn against that Georgia defense, and it cost them in the end. Now on to week six and this week's game of the week. Last week it was Auburn-Georgia. Hopefully this week it's a little bit better of a game. Number one Clemson against number seven Miami. Trevor Lawrence is going to come up a few times on this show. So far this season, he's completed over 73% of his passes, 11.3 yards per cent, seven touchdowns, no interceptions. He threw his first fourth quarter pass of the season last week against Virginia. This week, obviously, it's a different beast against Miami. The Hurricanes defensive line is missing stud Gregory Rousseau, the defensive end who opted out in August. But they still have 10 sacks through three games, including two for Quincy Roach. Zach McLeod also pitched in with two of his own. Miami has allowed just 6.4 yards per pass attempt this season. Obviously, you heard me just say that Lawrence sits at 11.3. This season, obviously bound to come down against better competition. We've also discussed Miami's talented secondary in addition to the front seven. Is this a game, Tony, where Lawrence is going to be challenged even without Rousseau playing? I think he'll be more challenged than he was early early in the year. This is going to be the biggest test to date. Uh, You know, Quincy Roach has had a real fine year since transferring from, um, uh, from Temple. He's a guy who I think has found the home at defensive end. A lot of scouts grade him as undraftable. I think he's a mid-round choice. 
because uh, a lot of scouts don't feel with the size and his speed, he goes about 6'2", 265 pounds. He may not have a spot at the next level. I like him at defensive end in a four-man line, which he's playing at Miami, and he's flourishing in. I think Jalen Phillips has kind of picked up the slack since Rousseau has uh, decided to opt out. Jalen Phillips, number 15, is getting a lot of pressure up the field. He's good off the edge. He's got a closing burst. He can bend and change direction. He's shown some good things after basically being thrown into the starting lineup. You mentioned McLeod, and they do have a good uh, secondary. Albledge Jr., who we've talked about on the show. Gervin Hall, the safety who we've talked about on the, on the show. And Bubba Bolden, who just gets better and better and better. It's going to be a challenge for Lawrence. Obviously, the guy just improves week in and week out. And it's not just his physical skills. It's the way he leads the team, the way he leads the offense, his confidence. Um, but Miami's up against it. Miami's got a lot to prove. They want to show that early in the season, their turnaround this year is is not a fluke. And they can play with the big boys. Well, they're going to be up against it against Clemson. Heading back to the SEC now, where Tennessee travels to Georgia, to the same stadium where the Georgia defense just shot down Auburn last weekend. Staying on that side of the football, Bulldogs defensive tackles Devontae Wyatt and Jordan Davis get a challenge this week after Davis in particular played pretty well against Auburn. And that challenge is Tennessee guard Trey Smith, arguably the top senior prospect in the nation up there with a guy we've discussed a lot on the show, Carlos Basham Jr. from Wake Forest. Now, Smith is not somebody that you're going to see pulling down the line, pushing out to the second level, but what he is is a small area dominator and both Davis and Wyatt are bigger tackles, especially Davis, who also has some length to him as well. Obviously, we'd expect Smith to win out here just based on pure talent against a couple of third-day opponents. But, Tony, any chance that either Wyatt or Davis can give Smith any trouble? If they do, it's going to be a game that you know scouts mark down as a statement sort of game because Smith is far and away graded as the top senior prospect in the nation by scouts who do these sorts of grades coming into the year. You may not agree with it, but uh, he is, you know, he played some tackle, had some health issues, moved into guard. He's a wide bodied blocker. He's strong at the point. He's also smart. He plays smart, tough football, uh, you know, to kind of round out his game does have some limitations. Uh, I I don't know if if he's a first round pick, it's probably going to be in the bottom half of round one, but he's real good. He's NFL ready. And is a guy who doesn't have a great amount of downside. Now, I absolutely agree what you said about Jordan Davis. Uh, Jordan Davis, off of his sophomore film, I graded him as a last-day pick. He's a big-bodied guy, goes about 6'5", 325 pounds. Thus far, he's shown a lot of improvement in this game, and that's what you want to see. He's an athletic guy. You know, He's not a, a small-area guy who, whose feet get stuck in cement. He can change direction and pursue, get down the line of scrimmage. Uh, and make plays, and I think he's shown a lot of improvement. This is going to be a big game for him. Same thing with Devontae White. There, Wyatt. There are some scouts who like Wyatt as a potential fourth-round pick. Shorter guy, more explosive, more of your three-technique type, doesn't have the same strength or, or girth uh, of Davis. It's going to be a big challenge for both of those guys against what scout, who, uh, the, uh, the player that scouts feel is the best senior prospect in the nation. Now staying down south, and taking a look at Mississippi State and Kentucky. And the focus here is former Stanford quarterback K.J. Costello. A great debut for the Bulldogs under Mike Leach. 623 yards and five touchdowns in a win over LSU two weeks ago. But last week, 313 yards on 59 pass attempts. Not even six yards per attempt. Three interceptions in a loss to Arkansas. 
Now, rarely are two game stretches microcosms of a player's career, but here we are with the consistently inconsistent KJ Costello. Obviously, injuries haven't helped him so far in his career, so maybe we'll see him hit a groove if he can stay on the field this week. He's going to get Kentucky almost half of the Wildcats defense grades out as draftable junior safety use of Corker and junior defensive end Josh Pascal are the two standouts. Corker is a smart player, plays the run well, physical in coverage. The Bulldogs have seven wide receivers with at least five catches this year. So everybody in this Kentucky secondary is going to need to cover in this one. Meanwhile, Pascal is going to be relied on to get some pressure on Costello. Doesn't have any sacks yet this year but has been very active overall, making plays in the backfield as well in each game so far. So, Tony, which Costello do you think we're going to see on Saturday? Well, you know, Mike Leach is, is the guy that will pull out the hook very quickly. And my problem with Costello, and I wrote about it in the uh, Pro Football Network uh, game day blog during week one of the SEC, was even though he beat LSU, he was throwing a lot of interceptions and we saw that again last week. So if you can't protect the ball, it's not only going to hurt him in the eyes of Mike Leach, it's going to hurt him in the eyes of NFL scouts. And you know, Arkansas does not have a, a stout secondary. They don't have great defensive prospects uh, on that side of the ball that he should be throwing that many interceptions. He goes up against two underrated players who we spoke about earlier in the sense that we spoke about him that Auburn was able to pick him apart, or Bo Nix of Auburn was able to pick him apart, and Yusef Corker and Josh Pascal, as you mentioned. Pascal is rated as a mid-fourth-round pick by some scouts. I have him around later in the fifth. Uh, it's a kind of opposite with Yusef Corker. Scouts have him as a fifth-rounder. I think he's more of a fourth-round prospect. Corker is a guy who's a good football player, just not a great athlete. Makes plays with his head, makes plays with his instincts, but he's not really fast with his feet, which is an issue. You know, Costello's got to step up in the sense that I'm not talking about throwing for huge yardage. He's got to start to protect the ball against like a defense like Kentucky, or he'll be in trouble. Now we'll hit Conference USA for our last game preview, and this will be an intriguing matchup with Marshall at Western Kentucky. Thundering herd offensive tackle Josh Ball, who we've talked about often here over the past few months, gets a rare challenge in conference at least, against D'Angelo Malone. Both of these guys are potential second-day picks. Malone has NFL size and speed, makes plays all over the field, whereas Ball also has a nice combo of size and athletic ability. He can also get pushed against the run, slides out well to the edge, can pull across the line. So really, it's a well-balanced matchup between these two. The Hilltoppers also have Juwan Jones on the other side of Malone. And while he's more of a late-round prospect, even when ball isn't lined up against Malone, there are really no breaks for the Marshall tackle in this matchup. This is going to be the toughest test test of the season for ball. When you look at it from the perspective of a pure edge rusher, because that is what both D'Angelo Malone and Juwan Jones are. When you look at it from a college point of view, they're pure edge rushers. Now Malone, in my opinion, is going to be more of a three-down player, sort of like a Chaz Surratt at the next level because he's got he lacks size. He goes about six foot three, under two hundred thirty-five pounds, but he's fast. And when if you watch Western Kentucky film, he's very good in space. It's just that he's so athletic, he's able to exploit offensive tackles, which is why they send him up the field so far, so so much. I have him graded as a third rounder, Malone. There are some scouts that grade him as a second rounder. Juwan Jones, who's a fourth year junior, who who gave consideration 
to entering last April's draft, which would have been a huge mistake. I have him graded as a six rounder. We've spoken about Josh Ball, as you mentioned, uh, a number of times. He's highly considered in, in the scouting community. Uh, he's a guy that came in with day three grades. Some scouts think he's going to be a second day selection. He's a big athletic guy, can block on the move, can, pl- can block the edge. I think that this is one of those games that scouts who feel Josh Ball is a second day pick, if he plays well against Malone and Jones, shows the ability to really block the edge against these speed rushers as we move toward, unless he kind of the rest of his season falls apart, which I don't think it's going to because he's, he's done a good job since moving into the starting lineup on a full-time basis. Uh, I, I think this is, this will be one of those games where scouts who feel he's second day material will say, aha, I told you, look what he did against the Western Kentucky pass rushers. Words we never thought spoken about a top 100 pick. Well, look what he did against Western Kentucky. <laughs> well, yeah, well, but it is what it is, right? You, you deal the hand that dealt, that dealt with you. That's dealt to you. Whatever the <laughs> saying is, you should know that better than me. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, before we sign off on today's show, we're introducing a new segment called For the Record. We'll bring up a topic on every show, and we'll go on the record with our responses. And now tonight's topic is one we briefly mentioned a couple shows ago, but it's still relevant because the New York Jets are still really bad. And it's not going to get any better until Adam Gase is gone. But in this coronavirus-affected season, his leash is apparently longer than somebody like Bill O'Brien. But again, I digress. If this Jets season goes completely in the tank, Tony, and they get the number one overall pick, even though most people don't really view the situation as being Sam Darnold's fault, should the Jets take Trevor Lawrence, who most of you as a generational quarterback prospect, and move on from the three-year Darnold era? In my opinion, the answer is absolutely yes. Now, uh, this is a New York-centric show in the sense that Chris and I are in New York, and this is a topic that's talked about day and night on uh, talk radio here in New York. It's also been mentioned a lot on ESPN and, and other, uh, other avenues, other uh, media outlets. Uh, but in my opinion, you got to for a couple of reasons, or they should for, for a couple of re- reasons, and they will. You know, number one, Sam Darnold is not Joe Douglas's player. He was drafted by Mike McCagnin. So uh, Joe Douglas really has no connection to Sam Darnold, except for the fact that he inherited him. Uh, number two is, you know, Darnold showed a lot of good things late in his rookie season, through most of his rookie season, but especially at the end. And as you pointed out, it's been downhill since Adam Gase has, has taken over. He had the issue with the mononucleosis last year. He was spotty at times last year. He showed some uh, good play at times, but he was very inconsistent. He's been very bad the beginning of this season. Now he's not playing this upcoming week because of a shoulder issue. Who knows how long he's going to be out for. And you really don't know about Sam Darnold. I think the big thing is this. The easiest way to put it is if Sam Darnold and Trevor Lawrence were in the same draft class, Trevor Lawrence would be graded at least a half round higher than Sam Darnold. Doesn't mean he would be taken a half round earlier, but it means that his draft grade and his grade, the the grades assigned to each of them by scouts, Lawrence would have a half grade higher round than Darnold in in large part because Lawrence was such a, is such a, a much better prospect. He's much more of the complete package. He's got a bigger body of work. You know, I'm not surprised that Darnold has not, met expectations because I said all along while he had a great amount of upside and I kept saying he was the type of guy that could pull a rabbit out of a hat when there was not even a hat around. He also had a huge amount of downside risk. I mean, he turned the ball over consistently 
at USC, but the ball protection, whether it be interceptions or fumbles, w- was very disconcerting, and that has continued on, especially the interceptions through his New York Jets career. So I, I think without a doubt, if you are the New York Jets and you have the first pick of the draft, Trevor Lawrence is staring at the face. You got to go in that direction. Yeah, and I mean, you mentioned Darnold uh, being good at the end of his rookie season. He was also good at the end of last season. Uh, Jets finished five and two. A lot of it was, you know, Darnold putting up points. And that honestly might have been the worst thing to ever happen to him because it gave Adam Gage another leash into this season where obviously Darnold is against stalling. You know, again, he shows flashes. But as you said, the turnovers are an issue. They always have been. And they have been, you know, back when he was at USC. And if there's one thing, you know, people talk about accuracy and quarterbacks, you know, if you're not accurate in college, you're not going to be accurate in the NFL. Well, turnover prone quarterbacks in college don't all of a sudden protect the ball like magic in the NFL. So those are two traits that definitely carry over from college to the NFL. Um, You know, you just, you can't do it and you can't have it continue. And obviously for the Jets, it has continued. Um, I, I'm with you. Um, you know, it, it'd be a different situation if it weren't, you know, a class where there is a knockout number one quarterback who doesn't come around, you know, more than once every decade or so. Then maybe you could say, okay, maybe give Sam Darnold a, a chance with another coach and, and see if you can fill another hole because Lord knows the Jets have a lot of other holes besides quarterback. Uh, but in this situation, I agree with you that if you have the number one overall pick, unless Sam Darnold is lighting it up, in which case you probably don't have the number one overall pick, you have to take the generational prospect in Trevor Lawrence, which then takes us to the spot where now you have Trevor Lawrence and Sam Darnold on the same roster. It's going to be hard for those two players to coexist. Obviously, Darnold's towards the back end of his rookie contract as well, so maybe his trade value isn't as high as, say, Josh Rosen's was after a disastrous rookie season, but still with several years left on that cheap deal. Tony, what do you know about Sam Darnold's trade value around the league? There are some teams that really like Darnold from my uh, conversations, and there are teams that would be willing to give up a second-round pick for him. That's what I'm hearing right now. Obviously, this is all hypothetical. But you look at teams, say the New Orleans Saints, the Indianapolis Colts, maybe the Pittsburgh Steelers, you know, teams that are likely to be drafting in the bottom half of the rounds who want a younger quarterback, and they still see value in uh, Sam Darnold. There are a lot of people who think, you know what, this is a real good quarterback. He really shouldn't be playing this poorly. It's not only a coach. It's the fact that they, they've not been able to protect him. He's not had consistent receivers, especially this year after they got rid of Robbie Anderson. So from my conversations on this topic with people this week, they feel that if this scenario played out, the Jets would be able to get a solid number two pick for Sam Darnold. It won't be a fire sale for him. There may even be some teams competing for him. Like I said, those teams that have veteran quarterbacks that may need a younger guy for the future to quote unquote develop. Well, you got Sam Darnold, who's already got three years under his belt in the NFL. Yeah, and you mentioned Robbie Anderson there, obviously uh, having an excellent season in Carolina away from uh, Adam Gase and the Jets situation. You now look at what Ryan Tannehill's doing in Tennessee once he no longer uh, has to deal with Adam Gase. I mean, you know, Tannehill had to go play back up to Marcus Mariota. That's how much uh, playing with Adam Gase tanked his career. So you would think around the NFL, people do look at this situation and they, they realize a lot of it is Adam Gase. You know, some of it is obviously Darnold. You know, there are He's the one making the throws. He's the one pulling the trigger in the end. But it doesn't really surprise me uh, to hear that there are teams interested at the kind of level that you mentioned just simply from, I mean, watching the games. It's, you know, he's 
he's a good player trapped in a bad situation. Maybe he never reaches that upside we've talked about because, you know, if you throw a couple seasons away at the beginning of your career, that does become ever more elusive. But a situation where, as you said, a good team looking for, you know, a quarterback maybe two, three years down the line might be interested in a trade. The only problem with that is what are you going to pay him and how are you going to work out that second contract? Yeah, I, I don't think that's going to be an issue. And, and I don't, I, you know, I don't, while people will correlate this to Josh Rosen, I don't think it's the same because, you know, much to the disbelief of a lot of people, myself probably at the forefront, Josh Rosen has shown nothing in his NFL career. He was not good as a rookie at Arizona. Obviously, we saw the whole thing go down with Kyler Murray, and that move was made in large part because you had a new coach come in who wanted Kyler Murray to run the offense. That's worked out for him. But Josh Rosen really has shown nothing where Sam Darnold, the first two years, you know, there are points in his career where you can point your finger on, like you mentioned, you know, parts of last season. I don't agree. I think uh, the uh, winning streak in the in the second half of last year was primarily defense and the field goal kicking because the because they couldn't they didn't, weren't scoring a lot of points except for the giant game. The Raider game was another one. But there are points in his career where you could say, "See, this is the Sam Darnold that we expected to see." over the course of his career with the New York Jets, and we're going to coach it out of him. We're going to develop him into that quarterback on a, on a uh, every snap basis. And that's it for the 156th episode of The Draft Analyst, presented by the Believe Sports Podcast Network. Do you believe? If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe on any of the major podcast platforms and leave us a rating and a review. And feel free to ask us questions on Twitter, and we'd be happy to answer on the show. We'll be back next week with more college football and NFL draft talk. But until then, on behalf of Tony Pauly, I'm Chris Tripodi, and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.